You are listening to the audio from Grace Bible Church. This audio message is a recording from our Sunday morning worship service. We hope you enjoy. If you guys could, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. As you can see this morning, we're going to have some fun uh, with today's message, Matthew chapter 5. It's page 810 in your pew Bible. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, uh, you can grab it in, in front of you, page 810. You know, church, it's no secret that I like fishing. And during this time of year, I like fishing for bass using top water lures. And so the sole purpose for a lure is to allure, entice, and deceive. You see, the way a lure looks and the way a lure moves is meant to mimic something that's desirable to the fish. Now, if the lure were just merely a plain hook, it's unlikely that the fish would bite because they would recognize something's a little off. However, when the lure is made to look enticing, it hides the danger of the hook, and it's much harder for the fish to resist the urge to bite. And so once the fish is captivated and lured in, it's almost certain that the fish will be caught, reeled in, filleted, and fried on my oven or stove. Well, church, this serves as a vivid illustration of the allure of sin and the devastating results of succumbing to it. James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire, like the fish. You know, it's not, it's not the lure's fault, really. It's the fish's fault for going after the lure. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives uh, or brings forth death. And while there's many lures that appeal to our sinful desires, there's perhaps no lure more powerful than the allure of sexual desire. Why? Because once you're taken captive by this sin, or excuse me, by this lure, it's almost certain that you'll be caught and reeled into a situation that will leave you filleted and fried. Now, just to be perfectly clear, sexual desire in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's a, in fact, it's a biblical thing. It's a good thing. However, when we choose to entertain it outside the boundaries that God established in his word, it becomes a bad thing. It becomes a sinful thing. Solomon, who was the wisest man who ever lived, understood this reality more than anyone, which is why on a number of occasions, he warned his readers about the powerful attraction and the painful agony that is produced when we succumb to the lust of the flesh. Concerning the allure of an adulterer, Solomon wrote in Proverbs 7, verses 25 through 27, he says, Don't let your heart stray away toward her. Don't wander down her wayward path, for she has been the ruin of many, and many men have been her victims. Her house is the road to the grave. Her bedroom is the den of death. And so, church, all of this to say the allure of sexual sin is something that we cannot take for granted. Now more than ever before, sensuality has invaded every area of our culture. And even though it's always existed, access to it has never been easier. The lures are literally everywhere, and the lures are enticing. Therefore, we must be diligent and on guard, lest we fall captive to the irresistible pull. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart from everything you do flows from it. And so this morning, as we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to learn how to guard our hearts in an age of pervasive sensuality. And it's through our study that we're going to be reminded of an important truth to remember. It's this. We are called to pursue 
sexual purity. That is the call of every believer. And so as we jump into God's word, before we do, let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time in his word today. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for the opportunity to bring your word this morning, God. This is such a timely and important and, and Lord, really kind of a difficult subject because it is something that is so pervasive. And God, we all um, have fallen captive to it one way or the other. And so, God, we, we just pray that you would provide uh, your, the Holy Spirit's guidance as I preach. Lord, that you would uh, use your words uh, to convict our hearts this morning. Uh, Lord, not to guilt us, Lord it's not about feeling guilty, it's about, it's about conviction, and it's about understanding your ways are better than our ways. And so, Lord, help us to believe that this morning as we open up your word today. And all God's people said, amen. So now, before we begin, uh, let me provide a bit of context to where we're at in the Sermon on the Mount. So see, the Sermon on the Mount is by far the most popular sermon Jesus ever preached, and it's also the most provocative sermon Jesus ever preached. You see, within this sermon, Jesus gave some radical standards for righteousness, standards that we can never, ever meet on our own. In fact, Augustine described this sermon as a perfect standard for the Christian life. I mean, this is, this is what a perfect Christian kind of looks like. And so, therefore, one of the primary purposes of the Sermon on the Mount is to reveal our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. In other words, you can't, you can't look at this sermon and say, oh, I've, I, I got it all figured out. I, I obey this to a T. I'm perfect. No, the whole point of the sermon is to cut us and show us our need for a Savior. But that's not the only purpose. Another purpose for this sermon, an important purpose, is to reveal the type of life a believer can live when we have God's power working within us. When we submit to God's power working within us, we could, we could reach... Uh, what Christ teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. 2 Peter 1.3 says, By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. And so we know that, God, that we can do it. It's just a matter of, of getting there. And so in today's text, we're going to unpack what godly living looks like in the context of sexual purity. And so let's begin by reading the whole passage, and then we'll break it down. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Follow along with me. Jesus said, You have heard it that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members then your whole body go to hell. You know, church, when it comes to staying clean, there's a lot of different soaps to choose from, a lot of different soaps out there. And each soap has its own claim to fame. There's Irish Spring, which is known for its pro-vitamin E. Uh, there's Dove, which is known for being a moisturizing beauty bar. There's Zest, which after all, you're not fully clean unless you're... You see? <laughs> and then there's Ivory Soap, whose claim to fame is purity. In fact, ivory soap claims to be 99.7% pure, free from all additives, impurities, fragrances, or colors. It sounds like a very terrible soap to me. Now, other soaps may look better, and they might smell better on the outside, but only ivory distinguishes itself as being pure on the inside. Well, church, in the same way God wants believers to distinguish themselves, not just by what is seen on the outside, but purity of our hearts. 
And I can't think of a better passage that illustrates this reality better than today's passage. In fact, found within today's passage are three important principles regarding the severity of sexual sin and how to safeguard our purity. So let's begin by looking at the first. Number one, we must take sexual sin seriously. Let's just begin there. We need to take it seriously. Look again at what Jesus said, first half of verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Of course, he's quoting one of the Ten Commandments there. You know, growing up, I was, uh, or I went to a Catholic school, and I had to memorize the, the Ten Commandments. And in my mind, I would view some commandments like this one as a bigger deal than the other ones. You know what I'm saying? And so, so what I would do in order to justify my own righteousness, I would just compare what I did to, to some of the bigger commandments. And if I didn't break the bigger commandments, then, you know, I was, I was good. That was in my mind. So I would look at, like, Stalin and Hitler and say, like, all right, they broke them all, right? And I'm not even close to them, so I'm, I'm good. Like, I justify my own righteousness. I hadn't broken any of the big commandments. Well, as you can imagine, many of Jesus' listeners were probably thinking the same thing, especially when he said you should not commit adultery. You see, adultery has always been a big deal, but in the ancient Jewish culture, adultery carried an extra measure of shame. In the Old Testament law, uh, it taught that if someone was caught in the act of adultery, they should be put to death. And so it's likely that most of Jesus' listeners were not guilty of committing this big sin, at least not in the strict, narrow definition of it. And so therefore, when Jesus quoted this commandment, they were probably thinking, they were probably resting in like a false sense of security and pride. He's like, uh, like, I'm good in this area. One commentator noted, he said, for many, this became a conveniently narrow definition of sexual sin. It was also clear you, you were either an adulterer or you were not. And if you were caught, a caught adulterer, adulterer, you were dead. That really made it simple. How convenient and how deadly. He said, it is very natural for those of us who are not adulterers to feel smug and conceited. I haven't committed that sin. Jesus is speaking to the rest of you sinners, not to me. But Jesus knows our hearts, and he's not buying it. Instead, he communicates a radically new standard of sexual purity. You see, friends, Jesus took the external act of adultery. He got to the internal problem of the heart. And in doing so, he gave us a whole new model to judge ourselves by. Verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman or vice versa, you know, looks at a man, with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I'm sure it was about just as quiet when Jesus said those words as it is in this room right now. That was his mic drop moment. Now, to understand what Jesus means, first let's clarify what he doesn't mean. Jesus is not saying that it's wrong to look at a woman with affection or admiration. The natural attraction that we have to the opposite sex is not sinful. What makes it sinful is when natural attraction turns into lustful attraction. I've heard it put this way. It's not the first glance that's the sin, but it's the second that swells with lust and feeds upon the subject. And we find a vivid example of what this looks like when King David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Look at 2 Samuel 11. It'll be on the screen. It reads, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw, saw, from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. 
Now, it's, you know, sometimes you just see things, right? But, but, but David took it a step far, further. And David sent and he inquired. He entertained what he saw about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And so David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. You see, instead of looking away, David looked with lustful intent. He succumbed to his sinful desires. He was lured in, fantasized over Bathsheba, committed the physical act of adultery. Well, according to Christ's standards, the moment when David began to fantasize, he committed the mental act of adultery, which in God's eyes is the same thing. It's the same thing. And church, therein lies the sobering implication both for his listeners then and for us today. You see, according to Jesus, the sin isn't merely about what you do. It's about what you want to do. It's what you want to do. It's a heart issue. You see, in God's eyes, the sin is committed well before the act is manifested. It was like anger. Pastor Dave talked about anger a few weeks ago. Jesus equated anger and murder as the same thing. Because murder begins with the heart. It's an anger issue. And so here's the deal. In that respect, all of Christ's listeners then, and all of his listeners now, you and I, are guilty of adultery. Just like the Titanic, we're all sinking on the same, same ship. We're all guilty. Friends, we're living in a culture where sex is king. And you'd be hard-pressed to find an adolescent or adult who hasn't been guilty of following the desires of their sinful nature. If we're brutally honest, we'd all admit that at one point or another, perhaps at more points than another, we found ourselves enticed by our own lustful desires and lured into it. We're all guilty of the second looks and the lustful glances and the mental fantasies. We're all guilty of mental infidelity. Well, I'm not. I've never, never, I, oh, I'm perfect. Not me. Come on, man. Seriously? 1 John 1.8 calls you right out on that pretty quickly, where it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Can we just have some real talk? We're all adulterers. And if your heart is feeling a bit pierced right now, maybe, you don't, maybe you're a little uncomfortable, you don't like hearing that, don't blame me. But if your, art, if your heart is feeling pierced right about now, which mine has, by the way, spending hours upon hours and weeks preparing for this sermon, all right? So if you're feeling a little pierced now, that's, that's the point. That is the point. That is the point that Jesus was getting at. In one sentence, Jesus elevated the concept of sexual purity from an outward action to an inward attitude. His words are thoughtful and they're purposeful and they're surgical. They are meant to show how seriously God takes sexual sin, and they're meant to cut open and expose the depth of depravity in our own hearts. In other words, they're meant to show us that none of us are blameless before God. None of us are blameless before God. Of course, this begs the question, well, okay, in an age filled with such pervasive sensuality, is it even possible? I mean, is it even possible to maintain purity in this area? Like, you can't go anywhere anymore without something, seeing something. Bathsheba's everywhere, yes? 
Well, church, according to Jesus, it is possible. According to that verse I read earlier from 1 Peter, it is possible, or 2 Peter. However, it requires a response that is radical. And this leads us to the, to the second principle. We must tackle sexual sin radically. Look at verses 29 and 30. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. You know, when I was in college, I, I worked at Circuit City. Do you remember that place? Gabe's is there now. It is Gabe's, right? Gabe's. That's where I worked. And when I first started working there, I was working in the DVD section. And, uh, and I was young, and I was passionate, and I was really into, like, trying to maintain my purity and stuff. And I remember, uh, not that I'm not now, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I was just kind of young in the faith and whatever. So I was, uh, I was walking down the DVD aisle, and I would, every time there was an inappropriate image, I would just cover it up with another DVD. I do that all the time. People would be looking for one DVD, they wouldn't be able to find it because I was just covering stuff up like crazy. <laughs> you know, they're, they're in the L section, and there's, like, Zs in the L section kind of deal, you know? And so anyway, one day I was doing that, and a, and a buddy of mine, a coworker of mine, asked what I was doing. And so, oh, boy. So I was honest with him. I'm like, look at man, this is what I'm doing. And I was expecting to be mocked. But surprisingly, he smiled at me and he said, I do that too. I later realized that he was a Christian. But church, uh, to most people, this action, and, and look at this is just, I, I'm, I'm a failure in so many areas. This is just one area that I was trying but anyway, I, I only share that story because, as an illustration because to most people this action might appear laughable and, and unnecessary and even a bit radical. Uh, but for the Christian, we're called to do radical things to protect our spiritual well-being in all areas. <clears throat> in fact, it's been said that drastic measures are always appropriate to protect one's spiritual health. And if there's any area that requires drastic measures for protection, it's the area of sexual sin. Now, just to be clear, in these verses, Jesus is not calling for literal self-mutilation, okay? Don't go home and do something you will live to regret. He's calling his disciples to be willing. This is hyperbole. He's calling his disciples to be willing to take radical measures to avoid the pitfalls of sexual sin. Radical measures. As one commentator Noted, he said, Jesus is telling us that anything that stands between us and him must be ruthlessly, even savagely torn out and cut off and thrown away. And so what does tearing out and cutting off look like on a practical level? We're not going home and taking out the butcher knives, okay? So what does this look like on a practical level? Well, I'm going to share, share with you some examples that could apply to you, that might be helpful for you in your journey, okay? These are just some that the Lord had brought to mind. Uh, and, and I think a lot of them are, are centered in Scripture, and so let's take a look at them. So this is just some practical ways of tearing out and cutting off uh, to help maintain purity. So here's the first. Avoid areas of vulnerability. Avoid areas of vulnerability. Proverbs uh, chapter 5, verses 3 through 4, and then 7 through 8, read this. For the lips of an immoral woman are as sweet as honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as poison, as dangerous as a double-edged sword. Verse 7, so now, my sons, listen to me. Never stray from what I'm about to say. Never stray. Stay away from her and don't go near the door of her house. Don't go near it. Avoid areas of vulnerability. You see, Solomon understood that once you place yourself in a position of vulnerability, 
it's game over. It's like getting caught in quicksand. You're going to find yourself sinking really quickly. And he later wrote in Proverbs 5.23, he said, he will die for a lack of self-control, and he will be lost because of his great foolishness. You see, all this to say, you know yourself better than anyone. Okay, you know yourself. I don't need to tell you that. You know yourself. And so you know your areas of weakness. And so to avoid getting lured into sexual sin, you must be diligent to avoid areas that you know will cause you to fall into sexual sin. For some of you, this might mean cutting off certain TV shows or movies, cutting off apps on your phone, cutting off books that you read, cutting off places you like to hang out, or cutting off certain relationships. So church, when it comes to sexual sin, if you don't cut it off, eventually it's going to cut you down. And that's why the Apostle Paul wisely said in 1 Corinthians 6.18, he said, run. Run from sexual sin. You know, when I was, uh, the guy who led me to the Lord, when I was young in the faith, uh, he had told me a story once of where he was just caught into a situation where he knew he was in deep trouble. Okay? And he literally ran. Which is what Paul's really getting at. He literally ran away, because here's what happens. Once you get caught, you can't run out. It's, it's game over. And so, like, it's, the, the, it's like getting the, that fish getting caught by, by the lure. Once you're caught, and man, if, and the lures I use, there's six hooks on them. And I still manage to actually fail at catching a lot of fish, so that's on me. But in theory, like, you could wiggle out of one or two hooks, but six hooks, forget about it. And that's, that's what sexual sin does. It, it's getting caught uh, in, in many hooks, and it's almost impossible to get out. So literally run away. Uh, from it. Number two, another way of, of cutting and tearing out is asking for help. Asking for help. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10 says, for two people are better than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help, but if someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Is that not true, church? We're not meant to go it alone. Everyone in this room should have another trusted believer in their life with whom they could bear one another's burdens, pray for one another, and encourage one another. Not just in the area of sexual purity, but in all areas of the Christian life. And so if you don't have someone like that in your life, I just want to encourage you to get on that. Get on that, because it, it is vital to your spiritual growth. Galatians 6.2 says it best, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's what we're called to do. And in addition to seeking help from, from fellow believers, there's also a plethora of biblically-based resources out there to help you find victory in the area of sexual sin. These resources include books, programs, meetings, and so forth. And so, church, all this to say there is wisdom in having a multitude of godly voices speaking into your life. And there's also a better chance for victory. Proverbs 15, 22, wise counsel plans fail. Without counsel, plans fail but with many advisors, they what? Succeed. So we need each other's help on this. Number three, super practical, protect your devices. Protect your devices. Church pornography has never, ever been more rampant, and it's never been more accessible. Even when you're not looking for it, sometimes you stumble upon it by accident. In the age of tablets and smartphones, it's everywhere. And that's why having filtering software on all your devices is an important measure for your protection. And I'm not just talking about kids. I'm talking about adults as well. Kids, my goodness, sidebar, parents, for the love of all that is good in the world, do not give your, your son or daughter an unprotected advice, device. Don't do it. Oh, I, I trust them. <clears throat> Please don't. I know you mean well. 
don't trust them. And even if you trust them, don't trust what's out there. I'm, I'm just telling you. Do whatever you can to keep them safe. They can't, unsee, they can't unsee what they see. So do what you can to keep them safe. Job 31.1 says, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look at lust with a young woman. Well, protecting your devices with filtering software goes a long way in helping you maintain a covenant of purity. So I want to encourage you to do that. And finally, for married couples, again, this is, there's probably other examples. This is just another example of cutting things off. Um, would be this. Practice the Billy Graham rule. So what is the Billy Graham rule? Go out and preach the gospel to thousands of people? Yeah, do that. Do that. But that's actually not the Billy Graham rule. In his autobiography, Billy Graham shared of a time when his team of ministry leaders met to pray and discuss how they could uphold the highest standard of biblical morality and integrity within their ministry. And so they discussed several important subjects, including the subject of sexual purity. And so Billy Graham noted this. He said, we all knew evangelists who had fallen into immorality while separated from their families by travel. And so we pledged among ourselves to avoid any situation that would have even the appearance of compromise or suspicion. And from that day on, I did not travel, meet, or eat alone with a woman other than my wife. We determined that the Apostle Paul's mandate to the young pastor Timothy would be ours as well. Flee youthful lusts. So if you're married, it's about not getting together with somebody of the opposite sex. It's not your husband or your wife. And it's important to recognize that, really important to recognize, that the world, the woke world that we're in, scoffs at the idea of implementing the Billy Graham rule. They scoff at it. In fact, it wasn't long ago that former Vice President Mike Pence was faced scrutiny for following this practice. So let me give you a word of advice. As a married man or woman, it is not your job to make the world happy. It is your job to honor your spouse and protect your marriage bed. And this is just one practical way of doing so. Romans 12.2 says it best, says, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might be able to test and approve what is God, God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so as far as it depends on you, I understand that sometimes with work or whatever things happen, but as far as it depends on you, practice the Billy Graham rule. It's, it's really important. And, and so church, again, to the average Joe, some of what I just share with you is going to come across as pretty radical, but that's precisely the point. Taking radical measures to cut off or avoid areas of sexual sin is an important means to rid ourselves of sexual sin. And therefore, we'd be wise to implement whatever, implement whatever measures are necessary to keep ourselves in check. And this leads us to the third principle. We must treat sexual sin urgently. Look again at verses 29 and 30. What I have highlighted on the screen, actually. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And then again, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So, so Jesus repeated this statement twice, verse 29 and 30. Now, at first glance, it would appear that Jesus is saying, if you struggle with the sin of lust, you're going to go to hell. Just to be clear, that's not what Jesus is saying. You see, similar to his statements about tearing out and cutting off, Jesus is using hyperbole to make an important point. The Greek word for hell is Gehenna, and Gehenna is an actual valley in the city of Jerusalem where corpses and dead animals and garbage were discarded. In fact, it's a place where fires never ceased and worms never stopped crawling. 
And in ancient times, unspeakable acts took place in this valley, including child sacrifices. It was a terrible destination. It was a terrible place. Well, oftentimes, Jesus would use Gehenna as symbolism for the eternal hell. However, in this context, it is symbolic of the worst possible destiny for those who choose to live in sexual sin. In other words, Jesus was telling his listeners that it was better to take drastic measures to avoid sexual sin than to be lured into it and left in a pit of utter despair. Proverbs 6.32 says, He who commits adultery lacks sense, he who does destroys himself. And so church, in light of this reality, if you find yourself struggling with sexual sin, it's in your best interest to deal with it now rather than face the consequences, the devastating consequences of it later. It will find you out. It's just a matter of when. And the first and most important step in dealing with it now, dealing with it urgently, is repentance. After realizing the depth of his sin with Bathsheba, David penned Psalm 51, a psalm of contrition. It's such a beautiful psalm, and in it he wrote in verse 10, he said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Church, like David, if you find yourself guilty of sexual sin as defined by Jesus, I want to invite you to come before God and ask him to create in you a clean heart and renew your spirit. Because you know what? He will. He will. 1 John 1, 9 says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as you come to God in repentance, remember that the, I want you to remember this, Please remember this so you don't get discouraged. The fight for sexual purity is not a one-and-done deal. It's not a one-and-done deal. It's a lifelong battle. You may need to claim 1 John 1.9 on multiple occasions. I mean, we got to claim this every day for everything, don't we? It's not like we've all lived, like, is there ever a day where you just kind of lived sin-free? Ever? So it's not so 1 John 1 9 is like the greatest verse when it comes to Christian living because we can always go back to the Lord. But I want you to remember that it is a lifelong battle, and just like any lifelong battle, there's gonna be ups and there's gonna be downs, and there's gonna be victories, and there's gonna be defeats. And the important thing to remember is that because of God's amazing grace and what he did on the cross, he is always, always faithful to forgive us in our moments of defeat. No matter how many times we run to him in repentance, because of the blood of Jesus, his mercy abounds that much more. But more than that, and something that we can't forget, because you don't use God's grace and his forgiveness as a crutch to keep on sinning. Paul said, no way. You don't keep on sinning because his grace abounds. And so we don't want to use it as a crutch, because more important than God's forgiveness is that he will always, listen, he will always be faithful to provide us the power necessary for victory. Always. If we look for it. If we claim it. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 1.19, he said, I also pray 
that you will understand, and what a prayer for us to understand today, that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe. And so, church, I want to encourage you to keep on fighting. Keep on fighting and believe that God can give you the power for victory. And this leads us back to today's truth to remember we are called to pursue sexual purity. Now, if you need to get serious about your pursuit of sexual purity this morning, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do so in just a few moments. However, before I do, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that you won't have power to overcome your sin unless you've accepted by faith the forgiver of your sin. You see, God's power to overcome any sin is only at work in those who believe in Jesus. Therefore, if you desire this power, you must first place your faith in Christ. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. And so if you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can do so this morning by admitting that you are a sinner and by repenting of your sin and asking God to forgive you and trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ to save you. And in doing so, not only will you have the promise of eternal life, but you'll have the power to live a godly life. You can claim that power. And so in light of our topic this morning, if, if, you, if you need to do business with God, then I'm going to invite you to come forward during our closing song when we begin singing the closing song. You're like, oh man, if I come forward, I'm going to be found out. Real talk, we probably should all come forward this morning. So you're not going to be found out. Coming forward is nothing you need to be intimidated or embarrassed by. God is doing a work in your heart. You don't need to be ashamed. My goodness, why would you hide a work that God's doing in your heart? We do this all the time, don't we, though? You don't need to be ashamed by it. Truth be told, we all have reason to come. And so again, if you need to repent of sin in this area, come forward. If you need to pray for someone else in your life that you know that they're really battling with this thing, come forward and pray with them. Pray for them. If you need to pray with your spouse or, or, or your friend, come forward. If you need Jesus, come forward. Whatever it is you need to do, if you need to get right with God in an area this morning, I just want to encourage you, don't hesitate, come forward. And, and just give it to the Lord. And so at this time, I'm going to invite the praise team to come forward. So look, they're the first ones coming. <laughs> they're, they're, coming so, they're coming all the way up here. And while they come, let me pray for you before we close in song. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for this morning. and Thank you for the opportunity to open up your word and tackle, Lord, a subject that hits home with, I'm sure, many, many hearts in this room today. Jesus, I want to thank you that your standard is perfection and that you, you've, you've met that standard for us, that Jesus showed us the way. And, and the, whole, the whole point, Lord, is that, that, that in areas where we fall short, they're covered by the blood of Jesus. And we praise you so much for that, God. We're so thankful that, that we can claim an inheritance in heaven because of what you've done and not what we've done because we'd be doomed a long time ago. God, I do pray for our people this morning that, that if they need to do business, Lord, that they would come forward. But God, no matter what, that you would, you would work in our hearts and bring us to a, a, a place of repentance today and a place of victory tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast from Grace Bible Church. For more information about our church and our ministries, you can visit gracebiblepa.com.